the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. A true confession time. Those of you that have been a long-time listener to this program or have read uh, my um, bio workup on the website probably know that I'm a bit of a collector. I have a um, collection of antique and vintage radios that span the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that I've been collecting and slowly restoring down through many, many years. It's just kind of a, of a hobby. Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I began collecting 78 records and have, um, down through the years by visiting quite a number of <laughs> flea markets and garage sales and the like, amassed a pretty good-sized collection there, too. And, you know, after a while, you, you begin to realize that as much as you might uh, enjoy collecting stuff, either because you do it out of a hobby or sometimes you do it because you gives, it gives you a sense of, of emotional security or you just can't throw the stuff out, and then you begin to realize that slowly you're overwhelmed by it all. I guess the question is, as we talk today about this issue of feeling stuffed or overstuffed by stuffed, how do we deal with it all? Um, This can run the gambit of those on the extreme end of the continuum that are um, perhaps potential candidates for the Hoarders TV program to people that maybe don't live under piles of garbage, but they still have so much stuff in their life that they feel completely overwhelmed by it. And it begs the question, are you overwhelmed by life that you become overwhelmed by stuff? Or is it vice versa? We're going to get some wonderful insights today from best-selling author Ruth Sukup. Her new book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. She is the um, founder of livingwellspendingless.com and creator of the Living Well Planner. We'll tell you more about how you can find out uh, details concerning her ministry a little bit later on in tonight's program. And uh, meanwhile, Ruth, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about this issue. I've, I've had a bit of experience in dealing with this of recent times um, with family members that have passed away. And um, yes. as is typical, you have to come in and become the cleanup party. And um, it's um, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes when you're going through years of things that have been collected, some stuff very lovingly, other things that seem to be, from your perspective, kept for no good potential reason. And of course, as, as we try to figure out why we're so attached to stuff as it is, uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has to do with just the, the culture of materialism that we have in the world today. I think it does have a lot to do with the culture of materialism. I think we are inundated with messages every time we turn around to saying, you know, 
buy more, buy more, get this. This is going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. This is the thing that's going to make you more efficient. This is the thing that's going to get you organized. And we buy into every single message, and sometimes not even every single message, but we buy into some of the messages, and that's enough because there's so much, and it's so pervasive, and it ends up filling our life, and everything we think is going to make our life simpler actually only serves to complicate everything. And, uh, you know, some of this begs the, the, the age-old uh, which came first, chicken or egg question. Is it a sense of people who become so overwhelmed by life that they eventually become overwhelmed by stuff? There's things going on, and so it's it's less a matter of having energy to go through, tidy the house, throw things away, things get put off, procrastination creeps in, uh, all of that? Or is it a case where people kind of give up? Because they become so overwhelmed by stuff that it seems as if they, they just don't know where to begin. They're not quite certain how all of this happened. They just know that now that they're there, they have no idea how to begin addressing it. Is it either or or what? I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's almost like a, a crazy cycle that we find ourselves getting into where one makes the other worse and you, you don't know exactly what started. But they kind of once you're in there, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. Um, and, you know, it's really not just the the physical clutter and the physical stuff in our life that weighs us down. It's, and for some people, there's, you know, it's sometimes it's the physical clutter and then other times it's the mental clutter. It's the way that we overstuff our schedules. It's the paperwork and the information overload that's just constantly bombarding us. Uh, or it could even be the guilt that we feel, you know, you were talking about when you inherit other people's stuff. We deal with, with that, and that's something that I talk about in the book as well. So there's lots of different ways that it manifests itself, but I think the results are often the same. It's this feeling of overwhelm. Now, in my recent experience in dealing with this with a family member, uh, a part of it I think it has to do with the byproduct of being a de- Depression-era baby, uh, somebody who went through that period of time that knows what it's like to go without and therefore has a very um, conservative side to them, uh, a fondness of recycling, though things never quite make it all the way to the recyclers. And so, you know, I guess it becomes a way that that some of this can be um, justified. In other words, uh, plastic margarine tubs are saved because they can be recycled and used for food. So if you keep one or two, why not keep 50 or 100? Or uh, toilet paper rolls that can be kept because you can use them as great little holders for extension cords. But then again, how many extension cords do you really practically have? Aluminum foil, well, aluminum foil can be flattened out and reused. And before you know it, it's not just an accumulation of things that are of value, things you want to keep, things that have sentimental value, but then you quickly get overwhelmed by all of this other stuff that, quite frankly, at the end of the day, has no real intrinsic value to it. But your sense of having lived through times of great sacrifice and not having compels you to keep all of this. Yes. Yeah. And that, and you find that a lot in that depression era generation. And, you know, there's, I, I, there's not necessarily an easy solution for that either because it's almost this mindset that's so ingrained. But then what's happening now is that generation is beginning to, you know, pass on. There, it's the kids that are inheriting all of this, this whole house full of stuff, and some of it is, is worthwhile, and a lot of it is not, and having to sift through and deal with that. And that only adds to the overwhelm because we already have all of our own stuff, and then we get other people's stuff added into the mix as well. So it gives, 
it gets to be this crazy, crazy cycle of so much stuff. And what do you do with it? And there's a little bit of justification to this, isn't there? Because let's face it, we have been uh, hit over the head with this message of recycle things, save the planet, conserve. And so therefore, as I found with this one family member, uh, there was great care and effort given to recycling plastic and aluminum and glass and paper and, and stacks and piles and things and, and, and relatively organized. It's just that it never seemed to make it to the recyclers. And before you know it, you get overwhelmed by all of these things that, yes, have some, you know, use in a recycling environment. But I wonder if some of these messages today don't become a crutch that people can use or pretext that allows them to continue to accumulate because they think someday I'll use it again or I'll recycle it. Well, I think the idea that I might use this someday is definitely one of the big reasons that people hang on to stuff. And there's a lot of guilt that gets attached to stuff. And this is something that I really talk about in, in my book on stuff, where there is there are lots of different types of guilt that get attached to stuff. So some of it is, well, this could be useful and I don't want to throw it away because I might use it someday. There's guilt that gets attached to stuff because it's an unfulfilled goal or an unfulfilled dream. So say you bought some scrapbooking material because you have grand visions of creating this scrapbook of all of your memories and you never got around to it. And then you don't want to get rid of the stuff because if you do, it means that you failed in this idea that you had um, of scrapbooking or, you know, you don't want to get rid of something because it was a gift or because you spent lots of money on it. And so all of these different guilt um, things manifest themselves in different ways, but it all ends up resulting in holding on to too much stuff. And then that in turn makes us feel guilty because we're, you know, our lives are cluttered and we feel overwhelmed and we're guilty because we're holding on to this stuff and yet we feel guilty for getting rid of it. And so again, it gets us into this cycle of not being able to let go, but not wanting to hold on to stuff either. And the solution for that really is a couple of different things. You know, for sentimental items, we really have to learn how to separate out the memories from the stuff. And that's hard, isn't it? Because there's that sense of guilt over gifts or something that's tied into sentimental value, especially if it's a loved one who's passed away. Yes. I, I found myself going through and finding things when my parents passed that... Uh, under any other circumstances, if somebody had said, do you need this? Do you want this? Does this mean? Nah, not really. Oh, you know, mom gave it to me 10 years ago, but yeah, that can go away. After she passed away, all of a sudden, things that were the most insignificant become of great value because you reason in your mind, well, that's the last time she will ever give that to me, or I know that I'll never receive a gift from her again, and suddenly we assign tremendous emotional value to something that, quite frankly, may be of no value whatsoever. Yes, and that is incredibly difficult, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. We just went through that, um, and I talk about that in the book as well, with my mother-in-law passed away about four years ago, and then my sister-in-law tragically passed away about two years ago, and so we inherited both of their you know, estates and had to had to kind of go through that process twice, just back to back. And it was really difficult because you feel like you are throwing away somebody's life when you have to get rid of their stuff. And even though it's it was a lot of it wasn't sentimental necessarily to us, it was sentimental because we loved them. And and I think that's a little bit what you're speaking about. And so we really had to get to this point where we realized that 
the memories of our loved ones were not the same as their stuff. We had to separate the memory from the stuff and realize that memories and stuff are not the same. And that's really the only way that you can kind of deal with this influx of, of other people's stuff from a sentimental standpoint. We're visiting today with Ruth Sukup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. For a lot of us, this is a difficult issue to deal with. It seems like the older we get, we certainly tend to accumulate lots and lots more stuff. How do we begin to give some order to our lives that will not only um, deal with the issue, but, but ultimately give us the kind of liberty that we're looking for? And I'll give you one hint. When we come back after the break and continue our conversation with Ruth, I'm going to suspect she's going to tell us that the problem here is not a lack of space. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting with New York Times bestselling author Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Ruth, to most of us that are collectors or gatherers of lots of stuff, of value and otherwise, uh, the, the typical explanation, at least in our own mind, and perhaps even the justification to others is, it isn't an issue that I have too much stuff. You don't understand, Ruth. It's just that I don't have enough space. I need more closet space. My house isn't big enough. I need to run out to Walmart and go get some storage containers. That will solve my stuff problem. What about that reasoning? Oh, and I am so, so guilty of that mentality. In fact, for years, I suckled my stuff around thinking, I live in Florida where we don't have a lot of storage space because there are no basements here in Florida. And there, you know, you can't store stuff in the garage or the attic because it's too hot. And so I would complain all the time that, oh, we just don't have enough closet space. There's no place to store anything. And I would buy more containers and more boxes and more bins trying to organize it. And I I just kept thinking, it's just that I don't have the right system. I can't stay organized because I don't have the right system. And it finally, finally occurred to me at some point that my problem wasn't a lack of storage space at all. It was that I just had too much stuff. And every time I was going to Target to buy more organizing containers, I was also buying more stuff. And because, you know, I'd get caught up in the cute pillow or the cute picture frame or the cute candle because everything there is cute. And so it was something that I just had to really realize that my problem wasn't storage space at all. It was it was definitely the fact that I had too much stuff. Now you realize, of course, the entire storage space industry out there, everybody that rents these lockers and pods <laughs> and everything else, they're going to be very disappointed to hear this because they have spent decades convincing us that it's not a matter of having too much stuff. It's a matter of not having enough space to put it in. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm sure they'll be doing just fine with the, with the rate at which Americans are buying stuff. I don't <laughs> think they have to worry too much. But, you know, it really is in our lives. I think it's such a matter of learning how to stop the flow of stuff that's coming in. And I I have an acronym that I like to use to help people when they're trying to declutter their lives. It's sort of a four-step process, but the acronym is FREE, F-R-E-E. And so the first step is your F step, which is to fight to stop the flow. And until you do that, you really can't work on anything else because if you're still all the decluttering and all the purging in the world is not going to help you if you're still going to target every week and buying new things and filling up your home so that's really really the most important element of decluttering is to just actually be very vigilant about not letting any new stuff in that's the first step then second you can start working on ruthlessly purging so that's your r step is that you definitely want to begin getting rid of the things that you don't need and my criteria for that is anything that is currently useful 
despite who gave it to you and despite how much it costs. Well, wait a minute, Ruth. Let me interrupt. I, I realize that this stack of magazines is five feet tall, but you don't understand there are recipes in there that I need yes. to cut out of there. Or, or, you know, a lot of the, for a guy, a lot of those magazines, you know, Popular Mechanics and, uh, you know, the latest sporting magazines, you know, I want to be able to keep all of the information about the amazing season that the San Francisco Giants had last year. And so I just need time to, I'm going to, this weekend, I'm going to set aside time and clip out all those articles. Are you really? You're not convinced, are you? <laughs> because everybody who says that, you're right. The, the question really is, are you really? Because the answer is no, not really. That's just a pretext to keep it all. Right. And that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, currently, you still have I, have I used this? And I, have I looked at these magazines in the last six months or a year? And if the answer is no, and I can understand that, that hanging on to old magazines because I actually do hang on to old magazines not and and I don't look at them that often but I do look at them sometimes and so and I think they're pretty and I have them in my office and I have them stacked and organized so one of the things that's really really important that and I talk about this a lot in the book is creating a vision for your home and that's really important because a lot of times we have this idea of what our home is supposed to look like and what how we're supposed to be organized and how we're supposed to live clutter free. And so if we if we read magazines and we look at, you know, House Beautiful or Pinterest and we have all these visions in our head of what the ideal is supposed to be. So a lot of the things we buy are based on the ideal and not how we actually use our home. But at the same time, we all have a different threshold for what we can tolerate in terms of clutter. What is clutter to me might not feel like clutter to you and vice versa. So the first thing that you really, really need to do is is become absolutely clear about what your vision is of your home and how you actually use your home and who you share your home with and how they use your home so that you can set up a standard for kind of what you're going for. Isn't there, though, a lot of justification that takes place, uh, Ruth, when it comes to this whole definition of how you define clutter versus how I define it? And I ask that question going back to a loved one who, if queried and pressed hard enough, might someone admit that, yeah, it's a little bit cluttered and yet difficult to admit clearly, yeah, there's a lot of clutter here. When it's down to a pathway down the hallway, it's clutter. It, 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 it's hard to, you know, I, I know that there are extremes. Somebody says if there's if there's two file folders on the desk, that's clutter. And others say there could be 20 file folders, stacks of file folders on the desk. But so long as they're all organized, not strewn every which way, and I know what's in each pile, I don't consider it clutter. But I'm talking about those extreme degrees where people justify, uh, perhaps not as much to others as they do to themselves, that it really isn't clutter when at the end of the day it is clutter. Well, I think that the criteria needs to be what's causing stress. If it if it does not if it honestly does not bother you and you you like things a certain way and it doesn't cause frustration and it doesn't cause stress, then more power to you. Then I think you know you need to understand that. But a lot of times with people and clutter, it is causing stress, and there are things that are, are weighing down on you. You know, it might be the stress of not ever being able to find anything, and that is stressful. Not paying bills on time because your your paperwork is completely unorganized, and or it might be that, you know, you're a, a, a couple lives together and they have different thresholds, and so they fight a lot about a mess because one, the mess doesn't bother them at all, and the other is, is very bothered by it. 
So when they're when the clutter is causing stress, either in your relationship or in your life or um, in any sort of area, then that's when I think that it becomes problematic. People can have different thresholds, but if there's a threshold that's causing stress, that's where you need to start addressing it. And, of course, there's a degree to which uh, the old adage, it takes two to tango. And uh, sometimes we find people are drowning together, aren't they, where maybe uh, maybe one spouse after a season just gives up because they've not been able to encourage the, the clutter collector to break the habit? Oh, absolutely. I think, <laughs> you know, I like to say that couples sharpen each other's swords, but it can go the other way, too. And sometimes, you know, you you just for the sake of peace, you end up um, one gives in. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Ruth Sokup, a guest today. Her book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul, even organizing things like all the paperwork that in life are necessities. How do we deal with that? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the discussion with Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Now, I made mention before the break, Ruth, we have everything from sentimental things like birthday cards, anniversary cards that we wish to keep down through the years. My grandmother had a collection that when she passed away, we discovered went back all the way to Valentine's Day cards in the 1920s. Some amazing stuff and very grateful that she kept all of that. But then we add to that the list of recipes and news magazine articles. And then, of course, you have everything related to income taxes and, and legal papers, uh, some people of which keep not only years, decades worth of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've done this show for 25 years plus now. And in the early days, pre-internet, everything was paper and everything got filed in filing cabinets. And over the course of many years, I had accumulated a total of four five-drawer vertical file filing cabinets. That's 20 filing cabinet drawers worth of stuff. And it got to the point where we finally realized with the advent of the Internet and the ability to scan papers and save them into a computer that there was no need for all of that anymore, that any of the documents and information and notes and resources that had been accumulated over the course of a decade, two decades, that had all been neatly filed away could actually all be neatly ground up into scrap paper and all of it could be utilized or gained off the Internet. Is that one approach to go electronic when it comes to managing a lot of the information that we want to keep from family photographs to, quite frankly, all the legal paperwork necessary for tax season and the like? Well, actually, you know, the Internet is kind of a double-edged sword because it has improved the the amount of paper, I guess, lessened the amount of actual physical paper we have, but it has increased the amount of information that we have coming at us so much that it is just as overwhelming, if not more overwhelming, than the actual physical paper that we have piling up on our desk. And I like to say that paper paper, paper clutter and information clutter, which I kind of view as almost the same thing because the problem is the same, it's not really a clutter problem, but it's a procrastination problem. And what I mean by that is that most of the paper that we get and that comes to us and most of the information that comes to us via email is all requiring our action. So what it's doing is overwhelming us because we're procrastinating to make a decision and we don't want to have to make a decision about all of these things because our brains can't handle that number of decisions all of the time. 
And so we procrastinate it and the, and it piles up and then it gets worse. And again, we get into another cycle of craziness because there's so many decisions that have to be made at any given time. And there's so many things demanding our attention and demanding our response. If somebody emails me, I'm expected to return their, their email and then they email me back. And it's this kind of endless cycle of, of need and response that we have to attend to all the time. And that becomes very, very overwhelming. I think there was a confession I read in the book <laughs> related to things like keeping emails or keeping voicemail messages for a long time to the point that the box got filled. I, I know several people that have that same habit. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have offered that as a solution because voicemails are another thing. So what I did I was my voicemail box, I let it fill up. Um, about two years ago, and it has been full ever since. So it is impossible to leave me a voicemail, and that has uncomplicated my life in so many ways. It's amazing. I never have to listen to voicemails. I don't. If somebody can't get a hold of me, they try back later, and or they send me a text message, and, <laughs> and it works out so much better for me. It's just one less thing that I have to check and that I have to listen to and then I have to respond to. And so. You know, I, I don't know that that's the best solution, but I think that one of the things that you can do, and this is what goes for paper clutter or email clutter, is create an information filter for yourself. So basically what that means is that it's, it's just a set of internal rules that tells our brain what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And it's some sort of little guideline that we have that our brain can automatically go, oh, this came in here. And so this goes over here. And so it's an if this, then that. And if, our, if we can set up enough of those easy rules for our brain, then it sifts everything for us. And we don't have to make quite as many decisions, which means we're not quite as, quite as overwhelmed. Is it helpful, too, to come up with a management program, so to speak, in your own mind that helps reduce the stuff before it becomes stuff? And I asked that question because I started doing something many, many years ago. Uh, I located a recycling bin very near the entrance to the house from the garage so that when I come in uh, after work and I go through the mail, there are flyers and circulars and petitions and ads and all of that stuff. I don't give it a chance to get into the house. It makes it as far as that front door. If it has a name on it that maybe I think, oh, I don't want this to be just thrown into the trash can, so I'm going to shred it, I'll maybe tear that off. But otherwise, I will tell you this, with great disappointment to all of you out there that send me ads and circulars and flyers in the mail, it never makes it across the threshold because it all stops in the recycling bin at the garage door. Is that a good idea? That is exactly how an information filter works. You have already set one up without even knowing it. It's your if is if you've got junk mail, it goes straight into the recycling bin, and that's exactly how it works. So when you can set up those type of simple, simple rules, and it, and I mean it has to be simple. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting organized, we think we have to set up these complicated systems and filing systems, and everything has to be color coded and. We overcomplicate the process, and then what happens is we don't follow through on it because it's too complicated to keep up on. It's too complicated for the rest of our family to understand, and it doesn't work. But the simpler you can make the system, the simpler you can make the rule where it becomes so automatic that you don't even think about it, that's when you start to eliminate the overwhelm. Let's talk about some other ideas in terms of eliminating the overwhelm. And, of course, the big question is, how do we even get started? And, and I, I've gone through this myself where you, you look at the piles and go, my goodness, it goes from that corner to that corner 
I, I do I begin at the bottom and work my way to the top? Do I start at the top or work my way to the bottom? And, and by the time you've contemplated this for a good five or ten minutes, it's sometimes just easier to say, mm, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow. How do you begin to get the process really started? Well, you know, there's a couple of different things depending on your personality and depending on what you have time for. One of the things I offer in the book is um, a list of quick wins, things that you can do in five minutes or less. And sometimes that's really helpful for people. Once you see a little bit of progress, it helps you um, snowball into more progress. Another thing you can do is do, you know, tackle one area of your home per day and commit to that. And we actually have a challenge um, on my blog, Living Well, Spending Less, called 31 Days to a Clutter-Free Life, which gives you 31 days of, of decluttering projects. But one other suggestion that I offer in the book is what I call the Unstuffed Weekend Challenge. So that is sort of like a quick win on steroids because you set aside an entire weekend starting on Friday evening and going through Sunday evening, and you plan ahead and you plan your meals ahead so that you've got easy meals. You don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning up and arrange child care if you've got kids at home or if they're older, you can have them help. But the entire weekend, and I give you an hour-by-hour schedule of where you start and what you do. You set the timer. You do all different activities throughout the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you've made a lot of progress. And and that can give you enough confidence to keep going forward. And I should mention to listeners, there is a complete suggested plan of attack, so to speak, inside the pages of Ruth's new book that will be very helpful in helping you to kind of get that strategy up and running. Before our time winds down here, Ruth, I want you to say a word about the impact of stuff on relationships. And you talk about this, too, in the book. Uh, We've certainly heard and and maybe even directly experienced cases where stuff comes between us and others. Um, Sometimes it's a substitute for others. Sometimes maybe it's safer than relationships. Speak to that, if you would, please. Well, you know, in the book, I do talk a lot about um, decluttering your relationships and the importance of decluttering your relationships. And that gets a little bit tricky because we can't unstuff people like we can unstuff, you know, our clothes clothing that we no longer want. You don't throw people away. And that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, in today's culture with social media and in the internet, it has sort of cheapened our friendships a lot, I think. And we have very, a very broad, wide range of friendships, and yet they're very shallow. And so I think that it's, that's something that's really missing in people's lives. And it, it takes a lot away from our lives when we're not cultivating those deep and meaningful friendships. But we can't be have deep and meaningful friendships with 500 people on Facebook. You have to be real selective. And that's what I, what I talk about in the book is about how you kind of focus on those friendships that are really the most meaningful and, and make those a priority in your life. It is a great way to get started with some spring cleaning to not only unstuff your, your house, but also to declutter your home, mind, and soul. The book's called Unstuffed. It's an easy read and one that I think, um, no matter how much you personally may struggle with this or a loved one does, I think can be an invaluable tool to getting that process started. Check it out. The book, newly published by Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also on Ruth's website, livingwellspendingless.com. That's livingwellspendingless.com. And our thanks to Ruth Sokup for being with us. The book, Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We deal with a topic that I think will perhaps go to the heart of so many parents listening here tonight. Let me give you some background. I had a late night telephone call from a friend here not all that long ago. The conversation began like this. Hi, Craig. Have you seen my son? Now, his boy occasionally worked for me doing yard projects, repair work around the house. You know, anytime you need a little bit of strong back and brawn to uh, help the old man here out. And good kid and uh, was intelligent and understood, followed directions, so built fences and did all kinds of things. So his dad calls me looking for his son. I said, no, I haven't talked to him in a while. Why? He says, well, he disappeared two days ago and is not answering his cell phone. As the conversation progressed, I discovered from my friend that this is about the fourth such time in as many months that his son had taken off, all of the previous occasions on marijuana and drug-saturated rave weekends. Needless to say, I was shocked. A young man raised in a good, solid home, both parents, seemingly did all the right things, sent him to all the right schools, took him to church regularly, taught him how to behave, And yet, by the time he reached his late teens, something of a switch got turned. And the behavior was all of a sudden not of the young man that any of us knew. That prompted that parent that night, as perhaps you have even queried yourself, to ask the question, what did I or what did we do wrong? What do we do now? What do I do now? The issue of prodigal children is something that many parents have been troubled by and may, even as we speak, face. What to do? Joining me now, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, who in fact leads one of the largest conference ministries in the United States, Phil Waldrop is with us. The book is called Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And Pastor Waldrop, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's my joy to be with you and to talk about something that's very, very dear to my heart. Why so dear to your heart? Is this something that um, you have some close familiarity with? Well, you know, I get asked that a lot. And fortunately, uh, my wife and I have two wonderful daughters who are adults, and they're serving the Lord. So I often tell people I have not walked this journey myself. So people sometimes think that disqualifies me. But before I tell them differently, I say, but let me tell you why it's dear to my heart. Because for the last 40 years of ministry... There is rarely a week that passes, matter of fact, rarely a day passes, that someone does not come to me and tell me about their son or their daughter or their grandchild who has walked away from the faith. And they always get around to those two questions invariably. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And so I started on a journey over 15 years ago, interviewing prodigals, talking to prodigals, searching the scriptures to try to find the answers to those two questions. And it's taken me that long to really come to grips with what I think is biblical and practical answers to those questions. Let's get to the heart first of some of the emotions that parents go through. And I know it runs the gambit. There is a sense of guilt. There is a sense of confusion. Um, we were too kind. We weren't kind enough. Um, must have been something that went wrong. Certainly there's a day and an age where there's a perception that, well, because there was a divorce in the family that added certain stresses, on and on the list goes. And yet at the end of the day, the parent typically carries an enormous amount of guilt. Like my friend who called that night, you know, absolutely 
absolutely heartbroken, worried for his son. His wife was a bundle of nerves, and it wasn't soon before the conversation turned into, well, we must have done something wrong somewhere, because none of the rest of our kids behave like this. Is that sense of guilt very common? It's sense of guilt is almost always present, especially when the parents are good Christian people who are good moral people. Uh, they almost always ask those questions, and they feel guilty. So here's what they do. They go back to the moment that child is born, and they relive every moment of that child's life. Did we send them to the right school? Did we go to the right church? Did we let them play on the right sports team? Uh, and so we try, we go through their lives trying to find that aha moment when we can say, that's it. That's the reason why they became a prodigal. And when we cannot isolate a situation or a person to blame, we still have all of this guilt, and we throw our hands up and we say, I don't know what we did wrong. And so the end result is the guilt begins to turn to shame and embarrassment. And sometimes, especially in the Christian world, we tend to sit in church. We don't want to sing in a choir. We don't want to serve on a committee. We just kind of sit there through the services, and most of the time we're thinking, you know, I'm the only one with this problem. And one of the things that I do often when I speak to a group is I ask them for a moment to set aside the shame. And as a source of encouragement, if you have a prodigal in your family, would you stand? And when people start standing, there is this awe moment because we're convinced we're the only one that has that child. But the guilt is common, and I did the research, and I think I found the answer to that question, what do we do wrong? All right, let's let's work through some details here. The, the guilt sometimes, though, isn't that also accidentally um, or unintentionally stoked by oftentimes well-meaning people that either try to come alongside the uh, the parent dealing with the prodigal and offer some sort of an answer, uh, it, it, perhaps out of the desire to set that that disturbed heart at peace, or maybe even trying to sort of uh, minimize the situation. Oh, don't worry, he must be at a friend's house. She must be hanging out, you know, somewhere and, and try to kind of minimize the things. And then as a result, heap more guilt and shame on the parent? Well, we do, because a lot of times we try to help, but we make matters worse, because we try to help fix the guilt. So we try to say, as you just said to people, oh, well, it could just be it's not as bad as you think, or it's worse than you think, or, you know, it was that one kid you let them hang out with. We've got to try to find someone or something to blame. And sometimes those of us who are friends, um, and especially if we don't have children or our children are small, or if we're blessed with kids that have made good decisions, we tend to inflict more guilt on those people, thinking we're helping, but most of the time we're not. Or we talk to other people about them, and we sometimes try to talk about decisions they made that maybe we thought were poor decisions. You know, I've heard people say, well, they're prodigals because they sent their kids to a private school. Or if they sent them to the public school, well, that's the reason why they're prodigal. So the parents are in a no-win situation sometimes, and we feel guilty and guilty. And the very first thing I discovered was, if you're going to be able to reach your prodigal, you've got to deal with the guilt, and you've got to get over the guilt. And if you don't, you're always going to be in a position of weakness and not strength. And, of course, the irony is, and I know that no parent wants to hear this, but the irony is, at the end of the day, we're all born with the Adamic sin nature. Right. And many of us, I think, even as parents, if we think back to our own childhood and growing up years, had 
are moments of wandering and questioning and challenging authority and acting out and all of that. Some of us got it out of our systems earlier. Some of us didn't get it out of our systems until our teen years. Some waited until college. We think about it. In many cases, our stories are not all that dissimilar. And I, I guess it's hard for parents to really grasp the idea, the reality that, you know, we're, we're, we're all uh, in this sin nature prone to this sort of behavior. And so at the end of the day, it has less to do sometimes with uh, parenting skills or whether or not you took time to listen to your child and all of these other uh, angles that oftentimes from a guilt standpoint, we try to soften the blow as opposed to just having to deal, I guess, with just some of the harsh realities of man's sin nature. Right. Here's one of the things that I say to parents when they ask me that question, what did I do wrong? And I say, you know, I spent years doing the research and I taught with numerous prodigals. I taught with so many prodigals. They were, some of them were, were good moral kids who weren't interested in spiritual things to every kind of addiction you can imagine. To even one prodigal uh, who I knew well was incarcerated for a very, very serious felony. He'll spend the rest of his life in prison. And one of the things I look at parents and I tell them, you know what the research shows? That in almost every case, not all, but in almost every case where there's a prodigal, the parents did absolutely nothing wrong. I've had prodigals sit and tell me, no, I had great parents. I made the choice to walk away. I made the choice to do what I did. And sometimes they try, you know, there are those who are immature and try to blame their parents. But there's really nothing they can point to their parents did wrong. And so when people look at me, and they often will say, but I believe if you do it right, they always turn out right. Then I look at them and I say, well, let me ask you this question. What did God do wrong with Adam and Eve? Mm. Or what did Jesus do wrong with Judas? What did God do wrong with the children of Israel? You know, when you go back to Adam and Eve, God did everything right. In every sense of the word, he was a perfect father to them. And they made the choice to walk away, and they were in a perfect environment. And so there's nothing you can blame Adam and Eve for. You can say, well, the devil tempted them. But in reality, they were in a perfect environment with a perfect Heavenly Father who was doing everything perfectly, and they chose to walk away. And Judas was with perfect love for over three years, and he still betrayed our Lord. So the fact is, until the Holy Spirit tells us what we did wrong. We must assume we did nothing wrong, and we walk in victory instead of defeat. We don't walk in shame, because if we do walk in shame, here's what happens. Not only are we defeated and we don't have any joy in our life, but if our prodigal, especially if they have addictive behavior, they can begin to manipulate us as parents. You know, well, Mom, I'm in jail again. If you'll just get me out again, if you'll just get me out this one time, uh, you know, I'll never get in jail again. Or if you'll just pay my gambling debt, I'll never gamble again. And because we feel guilty, we give in, which is the total opposite of what we need to do with our prodigals. And so I tell parents, uh, until the Lord makes it clear what you've done wrong or until you come to realize the mistake you made, and sometimes as parents, we do make mistakes. I know, for example, a, a man who had an affair, and uh, it, he, his wife forgave him, the Lord forgave him, but he never discussed it with his son, and that became a source of contention in the heart of his son. That's a case where the father said, wait a minute, I never discussed that with my son. So I always tell in those cases, you sit down and 
you admit your wrong, you admit your sin to your, your prodigal, and you ask for their forgiveness. They may not grant it, but you remove the barrier. So there are times when we know we did things wrong, and we ought to ask for forgiveness. But until we are aware of it, we must live as though we did nothing wrong and have victory in our hearts so that we cannot be manipulated by other people, by our own prodigals, or by the devil, if you wish. We've got to walk in victory and get over the guilt. That is the most important thing a parent can do. Then you're in a position of being proactive, not reactive, when you have a prodigal. And of course, so often, not only as you point out, Pastor Waldrop, that parents struggle with the pain and the loss, but they then too struggle with the response. Well, what do we do? Do we overlove them? Do we become overprotective? Do we engage in tough love? How about blind love? We'll talk about that as we continue our conversation. Phil Waldrop with us tonight. A look at reaching your prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? 